Welcome to Southside Community Church. Enjoy our Sunday morning message. All right, if you are someone who enjoys practical, down-to-earth, blue-collar, concrete teaching, you are going to love this series. Uh, We're diving into the book of James today, and James is much different than Paul's style. Uh, Paul spends a lot of time at the beginning of his books talking about these really rich, heavy, theological treatments of God and Scripture and our, our place in the world and our role in the world and God's role in the world. And he, he's just, he, he gets pretty heavy. Actually, Peter says in Scripture, yeah, I know, Paul's hard to understand sometimes. Like he, Peter admits that. So Paul will, like if he's going to talk about, say, how our behavior is supposed to change in some particular way, he'll spend like three chapters talking about God and about theology, big picture stuff of who God is, before he ever even gets to, now because of all those things I just told you about, don't lie. I mean, he just sets it up with heavy, heavy theology. In fact, uh, if you look at the book of Romans, the first 11 chapters of Romans that Paul wrote is all heavy, heady theology. And then the 12th chapter, he gets into just a barrage of really practical applications. He begins chapter 12 with, therefore, since all of those things are true, here's how you should live. Here's how you should treat one another. So Paul is, starts heavy and gets eventually to the particulars, but doesn't spend as much time in the particulars. James skips all the heavy stuff, and he gets right to the down-to-earth application. Paul was a genius in the matter of theology. James was more of a practical pastor. Paul was an academic. James was blue-collar. Both are necessary in the kingdom. So this, even that should teach us that all types of people and all types of understanding of the Bible and all types of gifting are important in the body of Christ. Every single person has an important role, whether you're more academic-leaning or, you know, white-collar or blue-collar and just more simple and concrete in the way that you process things. Every single person has enormous value in the body of Christ, no one is more valuable than any other person. And we see that in James and Paul's styles when it comes to understanding the Bible, understanding theology, understanding how we're supposed to live in light of who God is and what he's done for us. Now, some would say that because James is so light on theology that maybe he's also light on his commitment to Jesus. But as we're reading church history, we see that James was actually killed by religious leaders who were not Christians of other religions. He was killed by Pharisees because of his commitment to Christ, because he would not deny Christ, or he wouldn't go lighter on his commitment to Christ. 
So that's not the case at all. He's deeply committed to Jesus, and we have a lot to learn from him. If you're fairly new to Christianity, if you're fairly new in your understanding of the Bible, or if you're still exploring Christianity, by the end of this series, you will have a very clear understanding of at least the ethics of following Jesus. You'll know how you're supposed to live. Um, If you have been following Jesus for a long time and you feel like your faith is a little bit stale, which that's a normal thing in our life with Jesus, that there's ups and downs, there's moments where you're really passionate and there's moments when you're really stale, and each one of those moments has something to teach you about Jesus. you You shouldn't just automatically look for some type of spiritual adrenaline to shoot into your arm because there's something to learn in those quieter, there's a deepening that happens in those that happens in those quieter moments. But if you are in a bit of a rut, and if it is feeling a little stale, the way out of spiritual staleness isn't getting yourself all emotional, it's having more obedience. It's giving more of your life to Christ in some way. So somewhere in the book of James, all of us will be challenged to be more wholeheartedly obedient to Jesus. And as we take steps of faith towards obedience, he increases our spiritual fervency and zeal, our awareness of his presence in our life. So this is for you, wherever you happen to be, James will speak to you. So let's dive in. You can turn to the the book of James and you can use your own paper Bible, you can open up your, um, your app, whatever you need to do, James 1, 1 through 4, we're gonna cover that today. It's also in the, it's also in the notes if you grab the sermon notes. I'm going to read these four verses, and then we're going to walk through a verse at a time. James 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Let's look at that first line. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. A couple things. Let's talk about the author. James is Jesus' brother. So after the Holy Spirit conceived Jesus by passing over Mary, the, they waited until after they were married, after, after Jesus was born, and then his parents, Joseph and Mary, had more kids. So obviously, I've said this before, it's, it's James is more a half-brother because they don't have the same father, but Jesus had siblings. And there's been a lot of debate, like maybe like modern academics debate about was it really Jesus' brother? And I think the, the evidence is overwhelming that yes, this was actually Jesus' brother. Matthew 13, 55 through 56 tells us that Jesus had brothers and sisters. And during Jesus' life, they did not believe that Jesus was the Son of God. 
So James did not believe that Jesus was the Son of God. John 7, 5 tells us not even his brothers believed in him. In fact, there's different times where his siblings kind of egg him on a little bit. And almost one particular area almost makes it feel like they're kind of making, making fun of him. They're egging him on. If you want to be known by people, you should, you should be at this location, at this event. Why wouldn't you go? And Jesus says, nah, I'm not going to go. And then he sneaks there later. It wasn't until after Jesus' resurrection that James believed that Jesus was the Son of God. That would be pretty convincing. And after Jesus ascended into, into heaven after his resurrection, Acts 1.14 tells us, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. <clears throat> so after Jesus was resurrected, the disciples are with him, and he ascends into heaven. He's hidden behind a cloud, which signifies God's glory. All the disciples, all of his followers, and his mom and his brothers meet in a room, and they begin praying. What are we supposed to do next? Because Jesus said, don't leave until the Holy Spirit comes. Don't go out and try to do ministry until the Holy Spirit comes. So we can assume that James was in a room praying with Jesus' mom and a lot of the other disciples when this, the new version of church was born through Pentecost. And that is when the Spirit came down and it looked like tongues of fire coming into this room and landed on these people and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and empowered for ministry. We can assume that James was in that crowd and he then became a pastor of the church in Jerusalem. This is really important because what we have in James is someone who was not merely standing at a distance listening to Jesus teach. Different times in Jesus' ministry, thousands of people would gather and listen to Jesus teach. And if you were like in the back row listening to Jesus teach, he could have fooled you. He could be teaching all these amazing things about how to live a righteous life, but you, know, you don't know if behind, what he's like behind closed doors. But James grew up with Jesus. James knew Jesus as a fifth grader. James knew Jesus as a teenager. James knew Jesus as a young adult. James saw the life of Jesus up close and personal. He saw him working in the shop with his dad as a carpenter. He saw him in the way that he treated his parents. James saw Jesus in a variety of different contexts and saw that he was perfect. He lived out what he taught perfectly. So in a way, James has almost more authority to teach us about Christian ethics because he not only heard Jesus, he validated what Jesus said by being a firsthand witness to his life. It's also interesting to note that he calls himself a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
That means that being Jesus' brother was not the most important way that he was related to Jesus. There is a spiritual union available with Jesus that is deeper than blood. It's deeper than physical or natural unions. If you recall, one time Jesus is teaching and a lot of people were sitting at his feet and someone said, hey, you're... Your mother and your brothers are outside, and they're looking for you. They want you to come home. <laughs> and Jesus said, who are my mother and my brothers and my sisters? It's these people who are listening, who I'm discipling, who I'm teaching how to live in light of the kingdom for my glory. These are my mothers and brothers and sisters. That's good news for us because it does not diminish the incredible importance of family relationships. It raises the dignity and the importance of spiritual relationships, particularly with Jesus. It tells us how we can be related to Jesus in a deeper way than even his own brothers and sisters were on earth. And that relationship to Jesus is available to every person in this room. You can be closer to Jesus, so close that the, he, his spirit himself lives in you any moment by simply entrusting yourself to him. The work of a Christian first is to believe in Jesus, to believe in him, to believe that he's done the work to make it possible for you to be a part of his spiritual family forever. To the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. That's a little bit more complicated, but essentially what he's saying is the God's people, the Israelites that he had chosen, were dispersed into 12 tribes through 12 sons, and they also represent Christians everywhere because we've been grafted into their family. We've been grafted into the Jewish religion. Um, so you don't have to become a Jewish person to be a Christian. That was a debate of the, the first century church. But we are now included as part of God's family. So he's talking, I think James is talking particularly to Jewish Christians, but also generally to Christians everywhere. We know that for a fact because all of Scripture is Jesus' ever present voice to everybody that reads it. So um, he's speaking to us as a part of that dispersion. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. How many of you, that's your first inclination? When you face some type of suffering, when you face some type of trial, raise your hand if your first inclination is to count it joy. All right, because I, I was going to ask you to either come up here and finish it or just leave because I don't believe you. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing when God brings difficulty into your life when God brings trials into your life it's time to get excited because God uses the trials of your life like a spiritual gymnasium 
whenever a trial, whenever some type of suffering comes into your life, God will make the most of it. He does not waste pain. And if you learn to lean into him, he will use everything that happens to you to make you spiritually stronger. If there was no pain, if there were no trials, if there were no suffering, then we would have spiritually flabby muscles. We would not reach spiritual maturity. Even Jesus had to go through suffering and pain to become fully mature. And I want you to notice the word various kinds of trials. There's a variety is important. Okay, imagine with me that you decided that this summer, that just this next year, you're going to get in shape. You're going to get in shape. And so you start, you start going to the gym. And if you go to the Worcester Warehouse gym, there's a million machines, all right? Let's, let's imagine you walk in there. There's a million machines. And you see a calf raise machine. And you're like, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to commit. I'm going to commit myself. This year, I'm going to commit myself to coming in here every single day and working on that calf race machine. I'm, I'm going to work on my calves. My calves are going to be stellar. They're going to be huge. They're going to be amazing. I'm just going to focus on that. That would be so weird. You're going to ignore every other machine, every other body part, and just focus on your calves. That would be so strange because variety is important. When it comes to walking into the weight room, all those machines are there to help you in different ways. Why would you just focus on one thing, one muscle? So strange. Variety is important. And a variety of sufferings, a variety of trials is also important to develop you in every way, to mature you in multiple ways. You can either get grumpy and angry and frustrated with God, or you can lean into him and trust that by his grace, he's doing something with this. Throughout your life, you will face a wide variety of trials because God is exercising your muscles in a wide variety of ways. You will have certain people who test your patience in order to increase your dependence upon God to love other people selflessly. You will have people disappointed with you in order to free you from people-pleasing. Proverbs 29, 25 says, Fear of man will prove to be a snare, but everyone who trusts in the Lord is kept safe. How do you know you're a people-pleaser? Through being in a situation that brings it out of you. And through a variety of trials around that particular area of your life, you learn to live for an audience of one. Christians aren't supposed to be easily offended anyways. So don't worry about it if someone gets disappointed with you. That's not your problem. You live for Jesus and him alone. If you live for other people, it's going to kill you. So God will bring a variety of situations in your life that will expose people-pleasing. It's a big one, I think, in our world. You will experience heartache and loss in order to fix your hope on the future resurrection instead of this current life. You will face financial hardship in order to trust that if you seek his first, 
first his kingdom and his righteousness, he'll take care of all your needs. You know, I put my family in a really difficult situation financially when I walked away from a mega church that paid us really, really well and moved into my parents' basement in Worcester. And I had read Matthew 6, 25 through 34 a million times. But only the trial in the pain of not being sure for a minute where our next meal is going to come from did that truth drive into my soul with the help of the Holy Spirit. Trials take scriptures that you have memorized, that you have read, that you've heard preached, that you've done Bible studies on, and it pushes it. It's the longest journey in spiritual maturity from here to here, from your head to your heart. Trials will take what you know to be true about God in your head and push it down into the center of your being, push it down into your heart. That's what trials do. It forces you to, to actually live as though what we claim to believe is true. And you will face seasons of overwhelm and chaos in order to center yourself more consistently in Christ. I think I'm as much anchored in Christ as I've ever been because we are redoing our kitchen. And I hate chaos. I'm embracing chaos. I hate chaos. And walking through our kitchen and just seeing the crazy of it and walking into our dining room and seeing tables with food and trying to find where the coffee mugs and having to go downstairs. Well, actually, I don't. My wife has been going downstairs to wash the dishes. I cannot take credit for that. It's, it's chaos. And the chaos of my environment, this disruption is actually feels like a trial for me. I can be a little OCD at times. I don't like chaos. I hate it. But God is forcing me to be centered in him, anchored in the kingdom in a new way. So that I don't need everything around me perfect and nice. Because what's most important is my soul is well-ordered. I'm anchored in the kingdom. Anchored in Christ. That's a silly one, but trust me, it's doing some work. If you want to be a well-rounded, spiritually-minded, profoundly mature human being, you'll only get there by God using a variety of trials in your life. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, just really quickly, testing your faith does not mean God's making sure that you have faith. Testing in this passage means it's a purification and strengthening process of your faith. God is purifying and strengthening your faith. He's not making sure you have it. But what does that produce in us? What does it say? Steadfastness. All right, here's a couple, here's your first fill in the blank. The original language of steadfastness indicates that this means to remain under. Sometimes the Greek etymology is not helpful. In this case, it's helpful. It means to remain under, as in remaining under a heavy load that you are carrying. 
for an extended period of time without putting it down for relief. Remaining under a heavy load that you are carrying, a trial, enduring a trial, without trying to fix it, without looking for relief. If you just try to fix it and put the, put the heavy load down just because it's too heavy and you don't like it, you don't want to think about it, I'm done with this, I'm going to medicate myself, I'm going to distract myself somehow, you are shortchanging your spiritual maturity. That's like going to the gym and doing one curl and saying, oh, that's too much, I'm done, I'm done, I'm not going to do that. You're shortchanging the ways that God can grow you and strengthening you and strengthen you. This is an important theme in Scripture, remaining in difficult situations, trusting that God will enable you to, e- to be equal to the situation if you remain in there and trust in Him. Now here's some practical benefits of remaining under the heavy load of your current trial. One, it will increase the intensity of your prayer life. Prayer is what transforms your weakness into God's strength. So self-confidence was not really an issue for me growing up. I had an overabundance of self-confidence. And so God looked at my self-confidence and he said, if my strength flows best through someone else's weakness, I need to show him where he's weak. Now you guys have heard me talk about this a lot, that God gave me this, it was a panic attack disorder where when I spoke out loud in front of people, I would have a panic attack, like full-fledged. The whole thing. I would begin to lose my hearing. I would begin to lose my peripheral vision. I would hear my heart. It was a full-fledged panic attack. Every time, from ninth grade on until after college, I spoke out. If I had to read out loud in front of four people, I'd have a panic attack. It's the only place in my life that I didn't feel confident. It's the only place. And all of us feel like a five-year-old in some area of our lives. It's the only place. And so as I was debating whether or not to get into ministry, the person who was walking me towards that decision and encouraging me, you have some gifting for this, you should go into ministry. I kept saying, I don't want to, I can't because I have to talk out loud in front of people. Can I, can I like do it behind the scenes and hire someone else to do the preaching? That's the one thing I can't do. That's the one thing I refuse to do. I will not ever agree to teach on Sunday mornings because I have zero confidence And so he challenged me to see if God might want to show himself strong through weakness by healing me of that. And so he did. God healed me of that panic attack disorder. And here's what it did. Here's what it did. We're talking about intensifying your prayer life. Every Saturday night, I go to bed terrified. And I wake up on Sunday morning terrified. And I am half convinced every Sunday morning to call someone and say, hey, can you cover me? 
uh, this morning, I quit. I am not, I'm not preaching one more time, I'm done. And it drives me to prayer. My most intense prayers by far are Sunday mornings because I know if God is not sustaining me, I will not be able to do this. I have to 100% rely on God's power. There's a list of verses that I go through, promises that you promised to walk me through this trial. You promised to strengthen me to do this. And so the question for all of you is where, where is that weakness for you? What does that trial look like for you? That drives you to prayer. That drives you to a more intense prayer life. Two, the second thing, another practical benefit of remaining under the heavy load of a current trial. It will drive you to scripture to discover God's promises that provide comfort and encouragement for this particular uh, trial. It will drive you to scripture to discover God's promises. Now, you have to learn to rely on what God says is true even more than your feelings. That's hugely important. So one of the verses that I say to myself is, God has not given me a spirit of timidity, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. That's every Sunday morning. And I don't feel like that. I feel like I have a spirit of timidity. But I have a choice. I can either believe how I feel, or I can say, God, you say that you haven't given me a spirit of timidity. You've given me a spirit of power and love and a sound mind. I believe you. I believe you. I'm going to act as though that is true. And you know, the time that I am least nervous, I'm least anxious my entire week is when I'm standing behind the pulpit. That is a miracle. That is God's power at work through me. And it's because I stand on what he says is true. And so as you're enduring trials, if you're not doing it with scripture, if you don't have a list of scriptures that you carry around or that you put in, I have scriptures in my note app. If you don't have scriptures for your trial that you're constantly looking at, you're fighting it without the resources that God has given you. You're way under-resourced. You're trying to do it on your own. When you look at scripture, when you look at God's promises and you read them over and over and you say them to yourselves over and over, you begin to inhabit the truth. And even if you don't believe it or feel it at first, it becomes a part of you until eventually the spirit takes it and, he, and convinces you, this is relevant and this is real. And God has do done this and God is doing this. And that's when it begins to transform you. What scripture, what promises are you leaning on as you face your various trials? And three, it will deepen and enrich conversations with other Jesus followers. It will deepen and enrich conversations with other Jesus followers. Small talk is good because it leads to deeper conversations. I don't think we should be a church that skips over the small talk and just goes into deep stuff, because I think that's a little presumptuous, and it's, I think it's a little unloving to do that. It's a little unkind to do that, to skip right past. Let's just warm up to each other first. Small talk is good, 
and it's important. And enough of it gives you the right to begin asking some deeper questions. You don't just, just jumping right into deep stuff is a form of violence, it's unkind. But if you get to know one another, start with the weather, start with the sports, start with all those things, but you're moving towards earning the right to ask about some deeper things. And the more you begin to trust one another, the more you can talk about, actually, here's a current trial that I'm facing. Be the type of person who's safe to open up to. And, if, and we will become a church where we have spiritually enriching, honest, genuine, authentic conversations that get beneath the surface where we are speaking to one another, encouraging words of truth and scripture, carrying each other's burdens with one another. Trials are an opportunity for you to talk and begin to move at a comfortable pace towards some of the deeper things. Again, grace means that you move at a comfortable pace. You don't, we don't put people on the spot. We don't make people feel uncomfortable. That's unkind. But enough time, enough conversation together, and you earn the right to talk about these things and the freedom to share about these trials. Dallas Willard said, the most important thing in your life is not what you do, it's who you become. Paul said it a different way in 1 Thessalonians 4.3. He said, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. Your definition, Jesus follower, of success in life is that you are becoming more and more like Jesus. And the way that you become more and more like Jesus is to take the truths that you know to be true about God and allow him to move those truths from your head, from knowledge to heart to experience. And the way that he does that, the way that he perfects you, the way that he matures you, just like he did for Jesus, is through trials. So whatever trial you're facing, whether it's someone that kind of rubs you the wrong way, move towards them in love. This is a way for you to grow and to be sanctified. Whether it's a chaotic kitchen, don't just... Find someone to fix it and blow all your money in one day just to fix it and to be done with it. That would be foolish, Greg. Don't do that. Let God teach you whatever lesson he wants to teach you, as painful as it is. Whatever trial you're facing, don't put the weight down. Remain under the weight of it and see what God can do. Let's pray. Father, we live in a microwave culture. We want things fixed immediately. But spiritual growth is more like a crock pot where things need to simmer for extended periods of time. 
And you seem to enjoy using trials and suffering. And because we are so conditioned to be able to solve problems quickly through technology, we mistakenly bring that mindset to the trials we're facing in life. And I pray that your spirit would give us the courage to not try to slip out from underneath the heavy weight of a burden, of a trial, before it's time. I pray that we would trust you enough to let you do your work in us, perfecting us, maturing us, deepening our trust in you, driving us to more intense prayer, driving us to scripture to seek answers and help, driving us to one another to share our concerns and carry one another's burdens. Have mercy on us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. Check out our website at southsideworcester.com.